Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Last week, we broke briefly from Luke's Gospel, and I preached a communion sermon from Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, but we continue our series on Luke's Gospel. We are still in Luke's shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to verses 37 through 42. 37 through 42. Luke 6, 37. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. O gracious God and Father in heaven, we pray that the word of the Lord will indwell your people richly. And we ask that as it is expounded, that Christ himself will preach his word to the hearts and lives of the people of God gathered here. Help us, Heavenly Father, to have open hearts to hear this message from our Savior about the heart, about judgmentalness. And Father, each of us needs it. But Father, there may also be those here whose hearts are strangers to grace, who do not know you at all, and we pray that you would bring them to the Savior this morning. And Father, we ask that in various parts of the country this morning where there is grieving because of the sin of man that has caused the death of loved ones, we pray that ministers of the gospel might in those places administer the word in such a way that it will win the lost, should you be pleased to use it in that way, but also comfort the hearts of grieving people. We pray that, Heavenly Father, knowing that we live in a veil of tears and live under the authority of your word until our heavenly home is open to us by death or the return of Christ. But Father, we also pray that as the word is preached that you would raise up faithful ministers of word and sacrament, that you would restore in our country the church to sound doctrine, sound worship, and sound living. And Father, we thank you for those places in which that is true. We pray for it more widely and extensively, for that is the great need of the church and the great need of your people and the great need of our nation. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Standing together, take your copy of the word of the Lord and let's read Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 37. This is the word of the Lord. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you seek See the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. God is a merciful God. To how many of us here has the Lord come to us in our misery? And he has shown to us his sovereign, free, and wondrous mercy. But our misery is not the motivating cause of God's mercy. God is merciful. Mercy is an expression of his nature, of his character, of his goodness. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, as the Lord describes himself, reveals himself to Moses, he calls himself the merciful God. Romans 9.23, God's elect are called vessels of mercy. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 1 Peter 1.3, according to his abundant mercy hath he begotten us to a living hope. Ephesians 2.4, but God who is rich in mercy... 2 Corinthians 1.3, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. God is a merciful God. And how wonderful that we sitting here have been shown mercy when we deserved his infinite displeasure. And of course, in the providence of God, he has not yet treated the reprobate as he fully deserves. Now this summarizes the connection of this section on judging others with what we saw last time in verses 35 and 36. Notice those verses. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So this principle he works out here in this specific way. Your Father is merciful to those who do not deserve mercy And now he works it out in this area of a judgmental and censorious spirit. So let's begin there. First of all, Jesus commands, do not judge nor condemn. Again, verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. If we have been shown mercy we show the greatest of care in the way in which we begin to assess other people. This does not mean that we do not rightly criticize those things that are wrong or fail to cultivate in an appropriate way a critical faculty. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged, he also says, beware of false prophets. Now, I ask, how are you going to know who is a false prophet unless you make a judgment? He is not saying all judgment of any kind, discernment, discrimination about things, about life, about doctrine, that these things are wrong. And think of other scriptures. In Galatians chapter 1, the apostle Paul pronounces anathemas upon those who do not preach justifying righteousness. In 2 Timothy, he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus have wandered from the truth. That's a judgment. In Titus 3.10, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once then twice, have nothing to do with him. That's a judgment. 
First John reminds us that antichrists have come. How do you know unless you are discerning? Second John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. That's a judgment. John 7, 24, our Savior says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, the church is commanded by Paul to administer church discipline. A judgment had to be made. In Philippians 3, 2, watch out for the dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. That is a judgmental comment. In 1 John 4, 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so many scriptures teach us believers that we are to develop a very sound, critical faculty. So what does Jesus mean here when he speaks against judgment? Well, the word condemn actually helps us to understand. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Do not judge, he is saying, in the final sense. All of our judgments as believers in this life are functional judgments, not ultimate judgments. My judgment as a Christian must be tentative, not final, not harsh, not merciless, not unloving, not self-righteous, must not be untrue, unnecessary, and must not be unkind. All judgments that we make in this world are made in the knowledge that this is not the judgment day. And in the church, this highly judgmental and censorious spirit can be especially ugly. John Owen, the Puritan, speaks of the poison of common love and peace and the ruin of all communion. And you've seen it, haven't you, in Christian churches and communions, that when that hyper-judgmental spirit begins to manifest itself in a congregation, that common love and peace ruins the communion of the saints. Love, the Bible says, covers a multitude of faults and leaves the ultimate judgment to him who judges righteously and who will render to every man according to his works. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. God is not harsh with his struggling people. Should we not learn not to be harsh and severe when the Lord is not harsh and severe with us in our weaknesses? What a strange enjoyment, though. You tell me if this is not true. What a strange, strange, perverse enjoyment we have of focusing on people's faults. How eager we can join in to backbite or to slander one another. And basically, Jesus is after the attitude of the heart in this passage. A critical spirit, a gossip, a malicious intent quick to demean others and to think the worst. That's what he's talking about when he says, judge not and condemn not. It is the attitude that always looks for something to criticize, always looks for something or someone to put down or to demean. In 1 Peter 4, 7, we read, the end of all things is at hand. All right, the end of all things is coming. Jesus is going to return, live eschatologically, live in light of that truth, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This passage then is a real challenge to my own heart. What about yours? 
in your home, husbands with wives, wives with husbands and children, what about yours? Because the point is that a hypercritical, judgmental spirit, not seeing that God can, can in anyone's life bring about repentance and faith, being quick to condemn people as if this were the ultimate judgment, this is destructive of relationships. And a failure to see my faults and my failings is at the core of it. You know, Paul tells us in another place in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are to live with a new point of view, that we are no longer to consider people according to the flesh. That is to say, when we look at anyone, perhaps he's a great and notorious sinner. When we look at him, we are not to see him as one who we know to be condemned to hell. We look at that person through the eyes of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we say, God can save that person. God can grant saving faith to that person. God can lead that person to repentance. And we are to look at one another through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I know that God can save any sinner. He can transform any life. He can change anyone because he's changed me. Paul says, to use the old version, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul thought that, knew that, felt that, and who of us that knows the Lord Jesus does not feel, I am the chief of sinners, and he saved me. Surely he can save others. But moving on, secondly, what does a judgmental attitude display? What does a judgmental attitude show about our hearts? Well, the answer is very searching, and it's manifold, because first of all, and perhaps most importantly, a judgmental spirit demonstrates hypocrisy. Notice at the end of verse 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now what in essence is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is founded in self-righteousness. Luke 18, 19, the Pharisees were confident of their own righteousness while looking down on others. It is founded in self-righteousness. This word hypocrite, most of you probably know, comes from classical Greek and was used in classical times and has been taken over into the New Testament with the flavor of the ancient classical meaning. Hippocrates was an actor, someone who played a part in a play, and the ancient actors wore masks. Now, a hypocrite that is, a play actor, could play a good part or a bad, but always in the New Testament, the word hypocrite has negative connotations, and so it does in our own language. Mask wearing, saying to others, this is who I am, when you know it's not true of your heart, or perhaps you have become so self-deceived that you do not even know this about yourself. You are just playing games. You're playing religion. You are wearing a mask. Judgmental attitude is displayed in hypocrisy. 
But a judgmental attitude is also displayed in censoriousness, by which I simply mean, again, this strange enjoyment of judging others. Like the soap opera addict who says, this is terrible, but he can't take his eyes off of it. This is a terrible thing, but he enjoys watching the sins of others and delighting in other people's faults. Now keep your mark here in Luke 6, but turn to Romans chapter 2. You recall that in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has been addressing the depravity of the Gentile world. And so it might be that the Jew who is hearing these words would think, well, that doesn't characterize my life. But here's what Paul says to the Jew in Romans 2, 1 through 4. Romans 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Martin Lloyd-Jones mentions prejudice in place of principle, personalities in place of principles, habitually expressing opinions without knowledge of the facts, never ready to exercise mercy and to final judgment on people, and that summarizes it well. Now, a perfect example of that was in the passage that Adam read for us from 2 Samuel this morning. David the king steals another man's wife. She becomes pregnant by him, and then David has her husband killed at the front line, and he is guilty of adultery, and he is guilty of murder. The prophet Nathan enters the court and tells him the story of a poor farmer whose one little lamb is stolen by someone, and, and this man with a large, a large flock took this man's precious little lamb that was to him like a daughter. David is enraged. David is incensed. David is concerned that justice be shown. And he did not even realize in the process, thou art the man. David, you are that man. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, Strong feelings about the sins of others that are not matched by ruthless dealings with our sins are hypocrisy. There's something else about this judgmental, censorious spirit. It shows something else about our hearts. It shows that we're playing God. Usurping a prerogative that does not belong to me, does not belong to you, but a prerogative that belongs to God alone. So that our attitude should be, James 1.9, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If you will not cover our neighbor's faults with a mantle of charity, are our own sins forgiven? Isn't ultimate judgment God's prerogative? Doesn't he say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay? We're playing God. We're taking a prerogative that doesn't belong to us. 
when in ultimate terms we make a judgment about someone and his spiritual condition. But there's another thing that it shows about my heart and yours when we fall into this judgmental censoriousness. It shows forgetfulness. What do you have that you did not receive? If you were not tempted by a certain sin, isn't that because of God's grace in your life? If you've made progress beyond others in the Christian life, isn't that because of God's grace that has been shown to you? And so let us not carp and devour because someone does not have what we have. Do you remember a day when you did not know Christ? Do you remember a time when you did not have that grace? Do you remember a time in which you did not have that maturity, perhaps in a certain area, that your brother or sister does not have? And can you who are mature say that you are mature everywhere, in every place, in every area of your life? We must be careful. A person is caught in a lie, let's say. And we think that we must go and confront that Christian. And perhaps we must. It may be our duty to do so in certain circumstances. But as we go to confront that Christian who has not spoken the truth, we need to ask ourselves the question, have I always been truthful? And of course, the answer to that question is no. Which leads us thirdly to this. Jesus gives us a reason for not judging and for not condemning. Now notice verse 37 again. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now some think that what Jesus is saying here is that other people will judge you and use the same measurement, but that's not the point here. The point is God. The point is not that we should be moderate to judge others so that others will be moderate in judging us. The point is that a judgmental attitude as a way of life shows that we do not have a heart that knows what forgiveness is all about. An unforgiving spirit shows, I'm talking about as a way of life, something habitual, something that's really gripped the heart. An unforgiving spirit shows that we don't know what forgiveness means. A judgmental heart shows that we don't understand that Christ has borne our judgment. Indeed, a consistently judgmental heart will be condemned at the judgment seat of Christ because it will show itself to be an unsaved heart. And Jesus is not saying that we merit forgiveness or freedom from judgment by forgiving others or by not judging others, but he is saying, in light of all of Scripture, that these attitudes show what is in the heart and whether we are really saved by grace. Because the person who is really saved by grace will be moved It may be difficult, it may be hard, it may not be easy, it may be a process, but he will be moved to look upon his brother through resurrection eyes. And he did not know God, and he did not know what it meant to be saved by grace. That will be said at the day of judgment about that professing Christian who never had a forgiving heart, never knew the mercy of God in his soul, never experienced himself what it means to be forgiven. But notice the blessing of the life that lives by grace and sees others through the lens of the gospel. In verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
Now, this is talking about the seller of grain. And the seller of grain would uh, be uh, giving a certain measure. Three quarters full would be uh, in the sack, and he would put the sack between his, uh, between his knees, and they would pour in more, and he would shake it down, and then he would run his finger in the middle, and they would add more, and finally, the sack would be so full that it could contain no more. Tap down, the measure would be just at the point of overflowing. That's what Jesus says will be in the life of the person who has an open heart, who loves to forgive, who loves to show grace, who loves to show mercy to others. And then there's this passive verb, it will be measured back, indicating that to the degree to which you are gracious to others, your own life will be graced. Some of us just need to hear this, all of us do, but some of us really have a problem here. This needs to stick. This needs to be a barb in the heart that, that sticks because it is our tendency not to want to forgive and to pardon and to show mercy. But Jesus says, when you show mercy, there's reward. It's a reward of grace. It's not merited that God rewards your gracious attitude toward others. And in showing grace, you show that you know God and that you have experienced grace. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and an humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now fourthly, Jesus calls you, believer, true disciple. He calls the true disciple to very serious self-examination. Let's read verses 39 to 42 again, may we? He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So he says, can the blind lead the blind? Being arrogant, being judgmental will eventually lead you and others who follow you because you will have a following. People seem to love judgmental, censorious spirits. You will both fall into the pit. It's amazing how arrogant people can hold court and get a following. So if you're going to lead, you need to have this matter of judgmentalness straight and watch who you follow as well. The term here, bathunan, means a deep pit. It was used in the Bible of a cistern. So we're not talking about just a little bump in the road. We mean a deep pit. Ultimately, of course, the Lord Jesus is talking about eternal judgment. He's talking about disaster. And in verse 40, Jesus warns about choosing instructors like teacher, like pupil. In church settings, pick biblical teachers, men who, though imperfect, imperfect, of course, 
will teach the Word of God and will exemplify in their lives something about how to follow Jesus and how to live seriously as a believer. In verses 41 and 42, though, the Lord Jesus has this very familiar word, remove your own logs before trying to move others' specks. And we're so familiar with it that it's not humorous to us anymore, but probably when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount and he said that, it was a very striking thing that people had not heard, and there probably was humor. You have a beam in your own eye. How can you help your brother with his specks? What are specks? Just bits of chaff or straw. You have huge issues, but you're concerned to criticize small things in others. There's the call here for us to be self-critical. Hypocrite, he says. You are play-acting. You are wearing a mask. So the question is, where do I, where do you need to take action to deal with the huge issue that is in your life that will in the end make you a real servant to other people in need? What is that huge thing, that log in your eye that needs to be removed so that you actually can be to others what you need to be and the servant of Christ that you need to be? So you go to your doctor for an eye exam. And you say to your eye doctor, I have something in my eye. It's a little irritant, but it's just driving me crazy. Can you help me with it? And he bends over your eye and he says, I can take care of this. I'll get it for you. And he bends over your eye and he starts to work. But what you may not know is that your eye doctor has been having serious problems with his own eye. And he's not taken the steps to correct them. Now, wouldn't it be utter hypocrisy for the doctor to bend over you and to probe with his sharp instruments in your eye when your eye doctor cannot even see properly? Now, that's what Jesus is saying here. You go to someone else to help, ostensibly. You've, you're the eye doctor. You're, you're, your friend has this speck in his eye but you haven't taken care of your own eye issue. You can't see. You can't be the physician that the Lord would have you to be in someone else's life. It's really simple, isn't it? There's nothing esoteric here, but it surely is profound. One sermon that was preached by the Puritan John Owen that means a great deal to me is a sermon that's in volume nine of his works, and it's called The Duty of a Pastor. And if you are a minister of the word or an aspiring minister of the word, this is a sermon that you should read and read periodically in your ministry. One of the things that Owen says to the minister is this. I think truly that no man preaches that sermon well to others that doth not first preach it to his own heart. He who doth not feed on and digest and thrive by what he prepares for his people, he may give them poison as far as he knows. For unless he finds the power of it in his own heart, he cannot have any ground of confidence that it will have power in the hearts of others. It is an easier thing to bring our heads to preach than our hearts to preach. 
So I attempt by the grace of God to apply this to my own heart when I preach to you. I preach it to myself. I preach it hard. I take my own heart before the Lord. I ask him to search me and try me and show me if there's any wicked way within me so that when I preach the word to you, I can preach from a clear conscience. I have applied the word of God to my own heart and my own life. But what Owen says to the preacher here is applicable to some dad this morning. And you've been telling your children, this is how you should live. You're not living that way. You've been saying to them, this is how you should think. You're not thinking that way. You've been saying to them, this is how you should live, but you're not setting an example for it. You're a hypocrite. You're wearing masks. You're saying something that you're not living. You're saying something that may be true, but you belie the truth by the way in which you conduct yourself. Some mother needs this in the way in which you're speaking to your daughter. Oh, daughter, you need to live in such and such a way, but you're not living that way. Some teacher needs this. What Owen says to me, the minister, can really be applied to you as well, can't it? We all need to take heed to the word Ask the Lord to search our hearts to show us that beam in our own eye so that we can be gracious and merciful and truthful and loving when a functional judgment needs to be made about the life of some other Christian or some other person. So don't leave this place without asking, what is in my life that needs to go? What is hindering my discipleship? Where have I been a hypocrite? What hinders me from being a help to others because I arrogantly hang on to the beam in my own eye? Now let me remind you that Jesus is not saying here that we should be undiscerning and naive. Don't fail to make judgments when necessary for the glory of God and for the good of others. The call to avoid a censorious attitude should not become an excuse for lack of conviction or failure to distinguish truth from error, you know, a jello kind of approach to life. Uh, We used to say wishy-washy. There was a preacher years ago that uh, used to say, you can make jello, but you can't nail it to the wall. And so his students proved that you could. I think they altered the, uh, the mix and made it harder so they could nail it to the wall. Well, you don't want a jello approach to life. That's not what Jesus is saying. The Bible says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That's the scriptural call. It requires discernment. It it demands real, good, sound judgment. But, and that's the point, isn't it? Good judgment sound judgment, right judgment, not eternal judgment, not final judgment. If our lives are filled with hypocrisy and Christ is not the center of our thoughts and our will and our affections, we will ultimately err when and where real judgment and wise discernment is needed. He who judges according to the word of God and the law of the Lord and forms his judgment by the rule of charity always begins with subjecting himself first to examination and preserves a proper medium and order 
in his judgments of others. So I close with this. This text contains a serious warning about God's judgment to come. I mean, it is explicit and implicit throughout the text. Those who do not forgive are those who don't know grace. There is one who has the right to judge and will judge ultimately and perfectly. The believer in Jesus will know no condemnation on that day. The reason? Because God's judgment of the believer was taken by Christ, his ultimate true criticism of me, the sinner. His rightful criticism of me, the sinner, was poured out on Jesus in my stead. Believers are now and always accepted on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. But unbeliever who may be with us today, nothing will be forgiven for those who are outside of Christ. All the sins of your whole existence on the day of judgment, and you know there is a day of judgment coming, eternity is written on your heart. Even that desire that you sometimes have for judgment or justice points to the fact that you were created in God's image and there is a day of judgment coming. And all of the sins of your whole existence on the day of judgment will play like a video before the Lord and before an astonished universe and before your own astonished gaze. All the past, all those secret things, we all have them, every one of us those thoughts, those attitudes, those words, those things sometimes spoken to no one, all the past relived, and you should tremble if you're an unbeliever. You will have nothing in that day, nothing, no righteousness of your own, no righteousness of Christ if you do not trust in him. You should tremble to think on it, because what a capacity we have for self-deception. And I think that's really at the bottom of what Jesus is saying to us here when he speaks of judgment and condemnation and hypocrisy. He is saying we have this tremendous capacity for self-deception. Robert Murray McShane, one of our great Scottish Presbyterian forefathers, once he knew that there was a careless man who was working in the quarry. He went to the quarry, he observed the men, And this gentleman that he knew was careless about his life, careless about spiritual things, was feeding fuel to the fire there in the quarry in the midst of the work. So he would throw in the fuel, and the flames would leap, and the fire would become hotter. McShane saddled up next to him, and he simply asked this question, does that fire remind you of anything? And then he left. And the question was sent to the man by the Spirit of God like an arrow, and the man was converted. And God enabled him to flee from the wrath of God that is surely coming. The unrepentant will find that they have an omnipotent God against them, and they cannot prevail. You can't win against God. And so my prayer is that we, God's people, will grow in grace this morning that we will get rid of the logs, that we will be careful about forming our judgments, that we will be merciful in the way in which we express our concerns to others. But I'm also praying that some arrow this morning will pierce a lost heart by the grace of God and stick.
because God calls all men everywhere to repent. And there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved but the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.